podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? I'm all right, Dave. I'm not spectacular, but I'm all right, much like last night. Ella says he's all right when he's heading off to Monaco for a couple of days. Just back from Brazil, went to Tenerife, and now heading to Monaco. But we'll tell you, it's for work. A masterful life you've managed to manipulate for yourself there, sir. Uh, Liverpool won last night. That is five wins in a row. It wasn't always convincing. It certainly wasn't entertaining. But there were some bright spots in it. One duller spot in the whole show was the performance, I thought, of Darwin Nunes, Carl. I did want to point something out. I've seen some Arsenal fans attempting to take a victory lap. Uh, because Gabriel Jesus has scored more goals this season than Darwin Nunes. 10 goals in 22 appearances, plus 5 assists, compared to Darwin with 9 goals in 27 appearances and 3 assists. I would point out that Jesus has played 1,731 minutes in the Premier League, all of them as a number 9. Darwin has played 1,633 minutes in the Premier League, so that would be... 100 minutes less, and only 993 of them have come as a number 9. It also being Jesus's ninth se- sorry, seventh season in the Premier League and Darwin's first. Carl, that number for Darwin, 993 minutes as a number 9. It's a little bit strange to me how little he's played through the middle this season. I know we've had injuries and whatever else, but we paid sixty-four million for this guy, and we bought him to be a nine. We didn't buy him to be a left winger. Is it? Is it just trying to bed him in, trying to get him minutes where we can? Is it just the injuries? Why do you think we've only seen him through the middle for less than a thousand minutes in the league? Uh, I mean, it's all different adaptability reasons, I think, and not all of them are down to Darwin. Um, quite a few of them are down to the team and how bad we were. Quite a few, obviously, down to Klopp and how he's trying to rearrange things. Um, honestly, I don't really think he suits the number nine in the way that we're using it at the minute. How it was earlier in the season, yes, sure. But then he didn't really play there too much. And then the more recent switch, I think there's a lot more movement and involvement from, let's say, Gakpo, how he's playing the role than what Darwin is likely to offer or has offered before. So it's an odd one. Um you know, it's still early and we don't need to you know, rush to too many sweeping conclusions about his time or anything like that. But I do think that the use of him has been quite strange throughout the season. The lack of use of him in any position for, for quite a while. 
Um, I, I don't doubt that this is a really difficult season to have come into Liverpool, given how much we have dropped off and how certain players have underperformed. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a difficult one at the minute because I just don't see a very, very obvious fit for him the way we're lining up at the moment. Do you think if we had number eights who on the left side were perhaps a bit more dialed in with their final pass and on the right side had, you know, just more technical ability than a wheelie bin, it might be easier for Darwin to play as an on-the-shoulder number nine because those eights could take on far more of a creative burden and leave him to just scoring the goals. Cody dropping in has a lot to do, I believe, with the the lack of final ball quality in those number eight positions, and he's been asked to be more of a creator. Do you you think if we upgrade the number eights, Darwin might be more suited? Um, I mean, there's a possibility, but... I mean, there's there's obviously a bit of a form thing to take into account here as well. Obviously, his touch was a little bit off and there was not the great link up with Trent a couple of times when he goes bursting forwards. Um, so there's that aspect of it which can improve organically anyway. I just think that in terms of how you get the best out of Darwin, it's as a number nine, it's not necessarily going to be where there's so much rotation of position. It's rather going to be where he can... Maybe do a little layoff and then attack from a little bit deeper. Maybe looking to make the runs in from the left-hand side anyway. But when you've got Diaz out there and doing what he does, that's not really where you want Darwin to be either. So I just, I'm not really sure. It's it's a little bit of an awkward fit. I thought this when he signed, and we said this when he signed, about certain aspects of his gameplay. At that time, though, there was enough about how we were playing as well that he would add quite a bit to it. But if we're not having someone who is let's say, leading the line all the time. I'm not sure. I, I really don't know at the moment how easy it's going to be or how quickly he can get himself a place. Do you think this current shape will be the shape? Or is this just an experiment? Is this just, we had nothing to lose, we might as well try something new till the end of the season? And in the summer, we'll reassess and go back to maybe a more conventional shape. I would hate to think if that's the case, Dave. I really would. If we are just trying something now and don't know until the end of May if that's what we're going to stick with, how on earth are we supposed to be already certain of who we're signing for midfield? But that, that's what I mean. Like, do, do you think they've already, they already know who they want to sign? It's not necessarily players that... It's not necessarily for the fit in this system, it's for the fit in something else that that they have planned. I mean, I don't think so, but it's so difficult to merge what we're doing at the minute with what comes next because we you know, we still have no clarity over the director of football um, or sporting director or whatever you want to term it as. Uh I, I, I think this is a very muddled period at the minute. Even if this does stay for the rest of the season and the intention is going to be to take it into next season, we're still talking about, what, maybe eight to ten matches? Is that really enough to, to go on the next three years' worth of, yeah. of signings, of recruitment, of players you let go, of you know the, the training, obviously, that we'll be doing over summer and all the rest of it? If we start next season, having you know, fully intended to go in this way, 
uh, and signed a couple of players accordingly and doing all pre-season that way. And then we lose the first, let's say, two matches or we lose one and draw two of the first three matches. And because it's the imbalance down the right-back zone or the midfield is overloaded badly or whatever it is, or the forward line is not clicking in the creative way that we're trying to build up now, do we just abandon that again and try and fix something else? I, I, I don't really like where we are at the moment in terms of the possibility. Like, there's there's lots of excitement to be had, I think, for where Liverpool could go, but we have so much uncertainty over who's going to be dealing with that that I think it's a really a bit of a, a dangerous moment almost for what we choose to do. You know, there's not stability or continuity in any of those main areas. Tactically, the people involved in recruitment, the um, position that we are, basically, in, you know, in league terms, in cup terms, challenging for trophies, none of that is staying the same, or at least we very much hope not in the case of the latter. If you look at Trent's role right now, Henderson's role right now, Mole's role right now, and what we're asking... The number nine, sorry, not the number nine, the left winger and the left-sided midfielder to do. And you look at the average positions of where they're playing. It's actually quite similar to that thing we tried early in the season. Where Mo was playing very wide, Henderson was playing almost as a second striker, Trent was pushing into midfield. We had no real cover at right back and we were getting exposed now it's working better now obviously and part of that is that the left back is playing a bit more conservative or being at least asked to play a bit more conservative so I I do wonder if maybe they've just kind of circled back to that kind of Linder's ball from the start, well it is Linder's ball from the start of the season just tried to make it a bit more balanced I don't know. I I personally don't like the shape, and I don't like any system that is centered around one player. And this system is centered around one player. And one of the things that tripped us up last season was we created a system that was heavily reliant on Thiago, and now we're creating a system that's almost entirely reliant on Trent. And my worry is. When he was a right-back and the system was heavily dependent on him, you can find other right-backs who can cross the ball. We we didn't bother, obviously. But it's very difficult to find a player that can do what Trent is doing now. And I do worry that if if anything happened, if he happened to pick up a bad muscle injury, remember he had the calf injury and he was, was weird for about four months? He had long COVID in that period as well. Like, I do just worry that if, if Trent gets injured or gets whatever, this whole thing will fall apart and we would be left scrambling. I do always have concern about creating systems around one player. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, even if it's not one player, it's one position. Like, we used to see, like, let's turn the clock back a while. Like, there were a lot of teams that say in City are playing what was effectively a diamond, but it was a flatter three, then a 10, uh, and then two forwards, you know, and so much of the ball play would go through that number 10, so much emphasis on creativity there. And if anyone was able to mark him out of the game or he had a poor match, there just wasn't a lot of um, 
alternate creativity, let's say. It was it could be very, very stilted, very, very narrow. So, you know, the great thing about Klopp's early side here was partly the fullbacks were so rampaging, but also that front three had really good interplay, really good movement off the ball. Firmino's uh, positions that he took up were so different. So there was multiple lines of attack there. But, you know, when, when we had Thiago, if he wasn't playing... Suddenly, we just didn't look like we could move the ball quickly. If uh, Thiago wasn't there, we didn't have a lot of invention, let's say, through through midfield. And now, if we're trying to use Trent in that way, that's great, and that's absolutely fine thing to do. But yeah, you absolutely have to have more than one route to goal, more than one way of playing, more than one—not a guarantee because you can't guarantee—but a near certainty method of troubling other teams game after game after game after game if Trent's not there because a really serious injury happens you don't just give up the season obviously you have to find a different way so we've spoken about it before about how Summer needs to have at least someone who can fill in for his position and role even if they play a different way and even if they are looked at as a player who can play a different position more often than not but even so the build-up play has to be better through other areas of the team as well. I mean, I really like seeing Trent get on the ball and driving forward and playing from deep and playing one-twos and running on and all the rest of it. But I think, for example, last night, it was only quite as nice to see because you could see also, say, Luis Diaz having a really big impact individually and from the left-hand side. So you do always, always need multiple lines of attack there for sure. And at the moment, if we're outside of those two, Let's say the Diaz and then an overlap, whether that's from Robertson or whoever. And I, I don't know. I don't think that there's a huge, huge amount there at the minute because you're not really getting great delivery from the right-hand side. Salah has been a bit hit and miss in terms of sometimes he'll ghost past players a couple of times and create an opening for himself. But I'm not sure that there's the, the greatest link-up play there at the moment. Um, and obviously we've not really seen the, the switches, the big diagonals from Van Dijk so much either because it's more about giving it quickly to Trent in midfield now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Every time one of our defenders gets the ball or Fabinho gets the ball, their first action is to look for Trent, which is, is great when Trent is humming. But what if he goes through another bad spell of form even like he did for the first half of this season? then all of a sudden everything will break down. Now, obviously, one way to improve it would be to upgrade the number eights. That is, by all accounts, the priority in the summer. Um, Let's start with the left-sided one. So Curtis is playing there right now. I think everybody would agree Curtis has played well. I also think everybody would agree Curtis is not going to be a starter for us next season, nor should he be. But he'll play a really vital squad role. Now, the player, it seems... Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise, and a license with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. That has been targeted for that role. 
is one Alexis McAllister of Brighton and Hove Albion, and we've talked about him a few times. Uh, our good friend, or my good friend, the spoofer with the catchphrase, has said that Liverpool are, are pushing, and they've talked to him, and they've presented the project, whatever it is that means, and that they're hopeful of getting that deal wrapped up early this summer. <clears throat> How do you think Alexis fits in that role? Do you think it's a natural fit? Do you think it will require things being tweaked ever so slightly? What are your thoughts on him coming in this summer? Uh, I really like Alexis very, very much. I think he can um, definitely play a big role in the team. In this fits in this system, if you like. I do think that the left side of one is probably where he would be, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm a little concerned that he might actually be earmarked for that right-sided one. Um, that's, that's the honest truth. And then I think you're either asking him to do too much defensively or not going to get the most out of him, attack-minded, and probably not going to be good enough defensively. So I think the, the left one is definitely the, the better fit for him, but I'm... Um, it's quite rare, I think Diaz is an exceptional case here, that we sign players and they plug and play straight into the normal role we expect of them. Like, it doesn't happen very often. Gakpo, we thought, was going to be coming in for the left because everyone was injured on the left when we signed him. He's barely featured there. Diaz uh, is one of the only ones, I'd say, in the last couple of years who has really done that. Even Thiago, when he came in at first, we put him as the six. It's only like later on when obviously we were struggling defensively, he was push back forward there into midfield. So, well, we did put him as the six because Fabinho was playing centre-back, in fairness. Yeah. And, and the other really option was Henderson, who was having was also having to play a bit of centre-back. Yeah, um, I mean... But, but maybe, Carol, like, I think it, it's fairly obvious the recruitment strategy has changed over the last couple of years. It's It's not the same as it was pre-2019 into the summer, um, sorry, pre-2018 into that summer, that seems to be the last summer where we bought players specifically to play, you know, the roles that they were best at. And it does seem that it changed after that. And obviously Michael Edwards left at a certain point, Julian Ward took over. And not only did the strategy of buying players to fit change, but the profile of players that we signed also changed. Do you think maybe we're just working our way back to what worked in the in in the in the early days with with Klopp and Edwards, where we bought players with a specific role in mind? I know Ginny was is the one people talk about. You know, he came in having played as an attacking midfielder and a winger. But at PS, PSV, he had played as an eight, now a more attacking eight than he played for us. But it might be that, you know, he was seen as someone that could fill that role. Do you think, is it a possibility maybe that Klopp has realised he's made some errors over the last few years in terms of recruitment and is maybe going to try and streamline the process now? Um, possibly so. Uh, again, I think it's quite difficult to answer that until we know who the director of football is going to be. And, you know, we've already seen the reports suggesting that Klopp's going to have a big say in either them appointing or the, the players that are brought in or anything like that. 
Um, I think if Liverpool are making a big change in terms of the tactical approach, you probably do need a couple of plug-and-play players straight away, especially like a defensive-minded, ball-winning type of midfielder. Whoever that is has already got to be really good at that job to come in and make us capable of challenging again. And I think that that is the one I would... No. Um, so I think that's the one I would look at and say that's the most important thing to it doesn't have to be an exact fit obviously because not everybody plays this similar sort of way but certainly the, the traits that they have in the team I, I would personally prefer at least one comes in in that kind of role and we just know what they're doing that part of the team is sort of boxed off for now and we can work on the tactics and the intricacies and the movements and everything else sure but you know that this really important role that we've got to fill is filled. Yeah, I think that's really fair. I do. I think you have to know when the player's coming in that there's a specific thing you're buying him to do and he's going to be able to do it. Um, You mentioned the ball-winning role and Rodrigo Romano, who I have deemed as a top-tier source, purely because he's saying what I want him to say, said that Manuel Ugart is someone we're looking at for that ball-winning role. He fits that like a glove. I think Alexis then, as the left-sided one, fits really well. It would appear that the player we had initially targeted for maybe the right-sided role was Jude Bellingham. Now, we obviously have had a long and winding love tale with Jude based entirely on Jürgen's infatuation with the player and about a month ago David Ornstein and then a week later all the Liverpool journalists reported that Liverpool had pulled out of a deal for Jude now the spoofer with the catchphrase is reporting Real Madrid feel that they have got him signed, that that deal is is close to done. What are your thoughts on Jude Bellingham to Real Madrid? And I suppose the elephant in the room is, what are your thoughts on Liverpool throwing away a season, waiting for a player that they couldn't afford or couldn't attract? Uh, well, look, for Liverpool, I think it's the exact same thing we've been saying all year long. It's our own fault. That's it. It's it's our own fault. There's no way that Liverpool couldn't finance or structure a deal in a way that they could finance it. There's just not. If they wanted it last year and he wanted the move last year, you could have got it done. You know, I I, I get that there are many many factors at play, and so maybe it was never on the cards last year. But if it was, we don't have to wait a year. We could have got the deal done, even if it was a case of. Uh, you know, financing it across for next season or him moving next season or whatever it was. There's always a way to get it done. And the fact that we did nothing and waited for it to get done is what's put us in this position now. And this wasn't a secret and this isn't a surprise. No matter what Klopp has said, no matter what you know, people within the club have spoken to each other, it shouldn't have been a surprise. And it's not a surprise to any of us who have been watching Liverpool so often for the last several years. We can see where the holes are, where the drop-offs are, where other teams are catching us up where all of this was going to happen. Maybe not to the extent, maybe not quite to the extent that it did between October and February, because it was truly appalling in that period. But the drop-off, the not challenging for the title, the 
fact that we were going to struggle to get a top four spot was all evident. It was painfully evident. And even in January, we could have addressed it somewhat further than we did. And the fact that we haven't, those are decisions that people in the club have to own, basically. So it's our own fault. That's all I have to say on the matter. It's our own fault that we're in this position. It's our own fault if we don't get people we really, really wanted, because it was doable. So Real Madrid's perspective, I mean, I think it'll be a fantastic signing. Um, that's pretty much all there is to say on that. I keep seeing you know, people saying, oh, if they sign him, then they've got to sell one of the other midfielders. Maybe we get Jermaine and all the rest of it. That That's not the case. You know, if they eventually phase out, or they will eventually phase out, or he'll leave Modric and Cruz, that leaves them with Valverde, uh, Germany, Camavinga, and then Bellingham. That's four who can be there for another decade. Uh, no problem. They, they don't have to only have three really good midfielders. They can have four and five. That's kind of what Real Madrid have done for a long, long time. So he'll be excellent there. He won't mean that Chouameni has to leave or anything like that. If he does, it's because he doesn't want to be there or he doesn't think he's going to get a spot or he's a moody bastard or he doesn't like Spain or whatever it is. Those are all the reasons, not because there are four players. Um, that that that's, that's not a thing. You know, we've seen Camavinga playing left-back. We've seen Valverde playing right-wing. Are you really going to tell me that Jude Bellingham can't rock up at right-back for them for a few games instead of Danny Carvajal? Of course he could. Or on the wing, or in a diamond, or, or I think four. Valverde right. might, might see some time at, at right-back next yeah. year, to be honest. There's no, no doubt that they will play in all different roles because they are all very, very good players, tactically excellent. La Liga is not going to test them in a, a majority of matches. And they all have the athleticism. That's that's a a common factor that all four of those midfielders have, along with the technical traits, along with their uh, game intelligence. They are all really, really athletic, agile, brilliant runners all game long. They also one. have they also have Renier Jesus, who they can bring back off loan. Marvin Park, who they can bring back off loan. Antonio Blanco, who they can bring back off loan. They're not. Be starter quality players for Real, but they'll certainly fill out the depth. The only question I would have: Real's midfield has allowed them to control games through the passing of Tony Cruz and Luka Modric, and Modric's inventiveness in the final third has been key as well. None of the the Jude Fede. Chouameni, Kamavinga, group, have that same sort of passing trait. None of them have that inventiveness. Is that just something they'll try and replace somewhere else in the team then, do you think? Maybe bring in a wide player who's more of a creative force than a goal scorer? Or do you think they might just look to go and just run teams off the pitch? Um, I, I don't think that they need to specifically replace it. They might do. They might bring in someone, let's say, Endo Fernandez-esque along the way. But, you know, the game changes. You don't have to just copy and paste what you've done in one era into the next. I think that they've seen that the way the game is going or the way they think that they want to win the Champions League or can win the Champions League time after time is with extra uh, physicality, is with extra ball carriers, is with extra ability to support the attacking players. You know, you've got to remember as well that control and everything has really benefited Karen Benzema being very, very high upfield. But if he isn't going to be there and they're going to be relying on the individuality of Vinny, for example, more over the next two to three years, well, maybe you want that extra athleticism to join him rather than the, the passing probing approach, which Benzema's movement is going to 
um, benefit from. It depends on, again, who they sign for number nine in the next two, three years as well. So, you know, they, they were never just going to replicate what they already had. For starters, it probably wouldn't work because those were quite a unique trio to start with. But more importantly than that, you just don't be the same as you were beforehand because otherwise the game will just bypass you. You've got to constantly regenerate yourselves. I like the fact that in an era where Barcelona, City, Arsenal, and now us are moving to this WM formation and trying to become more technical than ever, Real have just said, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to go and we're going to get ourselves the best athletes possible. And we're going to be bigger, stronger, faster, and we're just going to bully teams. I do like that. They've got they've got a, issues to sort in their back line, but they've got aggressive, powerful defenders in Militao and Rudiger. They're going to have this midfield collective of absolute monsters who will just be completely fearless. And you've got the pace of Vinny, the pace of Rodrigo. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa. He does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. And if Benzema, maybe maybe the last iteration of Benzema is that he's the one who will provide that more technical, inventive side and they'll play through him even more and look to get Rodrigo and Vinny closer to goal and running off him a bit more. If that's the case, then it could absolutely work. Their, their just their their ability <clears throat> to find a deal for a player is incredible. Where we apparently couldn't afford dude because the price was too high. The reported price that they're paying or they're agreeing to pay is eighty eight million plus add ons. I mean, it, I really have a tough time believing that we couldn't have done that and done the rest of what we wanted. It was difficult when we thought the price was 130 million plus add-ons. If Real really have agreed something in that 90 million ballpark, that that makes it even harder to stomach that we've just allowed this to happen. Now, look, the player may well have chosen Real over us anyway, And us not having top four next season might have been a factor. I doubt it, but it might have been. Real's draw to players is just, is unmatched in my view. I think they've got this incredible ability to turn a player's head. Yeah, they've had that for decades and that won't change no matter how successful other clubs are or how well they do or don't do in, in their own league. That will not change. It all dates back to 
Mr. Perez sitting down next to Zinedine Zidane and writing, how do you want to, do you want to play for Real Madrid on a napkin and sliding it across a table? Um, <clears throat> right. Other options that have been linked in this right-sided role, or maybe, like you said, maybe Alexis is seen for the right and this other player would come in on the left. The other name that's routinely done the rounds, of course, is Mason Mount. Now, we talked the other day, and you talked about <clears throat> how maybe it would be more beneficial to have that right-sided eight be more of a physical specimen, someone that's more defensive-minded, has that ability to track runners, be a ball winner, things like that. Mason Mount is a very, very good footballer, but he's not that player. So if it's Mount and Alexis, am I right to be a little bit concerned that it's maybe too attack-minded? No, I don't think you're right to be a little bit concerned. I think you 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 should be very very concerned. I, I think you'd be vastly underplaying the amount of concern required if our midfield is, especially if there's no Fabinho alternative and it's still Fabinho, and then Mount and Alexis ahead of him. We will get torn asunder by teams who are good on the counter-attack or have one fast runner or have a direct play or anything at all. We already do at the minute. So Mount is more offensive-minded than Henderson. And yeah, he has you know better work rate or better stamina, let's say, at this point or whatever, but he's still an attacking player. He's a forward, if anything, more than a midfielder. So that that's not for me. I, I've said several times, I don't think Mason Mount is an ideal fit for this Liverpool team at all. I really don't. I get it that he could play a really good, strong role in the number eight if any, everyone else in midfield was perfectly set up as well. But as we are at this point, no, not for me, I'm afraid. Yeah, see, I, I look at, like, if, if we looked at the old Liverpool, like the 2018 to 2020 version, and you had peak age Fabinho and a peak age Ginny Wijnaldum and you were looking to replicate or to replace and upgrade the Henderson role, then I could see Mason Mount. But when the other eight is Thiago or potentially Alexis, that that does worry me, especially if Fabinho's still the number six, because he has definitely improved. But, I mean, there was moments last night he did still look quite slow and there was one moment where Joe Polina who's not exactly fleet of foot danced past him and surged away from him and Curtis had to come across and make a foul so yeah I, I have concerns on that as well I have been I have been going over that that spot more and more and more and we we obviously mentioned Fede Valverde would be kind of the, the prototype of what you'd want in there. You could just pluck anybody and drop them into that role. Now this, again, assuming that the up the six is upgraded, Fede Valverde would be kind of the one to put into that role because he is a right side all until himself. He doesn't need any help. And I've gone round and round and round and I even put it out on Twitter and I got some got some interesting replies and Someone said Joe Willock, and again, he's not the not the quality of player that we want, but I think could be moulded into that profile of player, just not good enough. Um, a lot of the shouts were for people like Dominic Zabozlai, who's super attack-minded, 
good counter presser, but not necessarily great. And the game goes behind him. And I, I mentioned this name to you, Carl, and it's the one name I've continued to come back to. I actually think Manu Kone is the perfect one. Not perfect is probably not the right word, but in terms of the off-ball stuff, he is an absolute monster. He's brilliant defensively. Playing him that high up would allow him to press and counter-press and allow us to win a ton of ball high up the field, which would alleviate some of the issues we have defensively. There'd be some issues if we're asking him to, you know, overlap on the right and hold the width and stuff, because that's not his game, but from his ability to cover ground, his ability to make tackles and win the ball, his pressing, his intelligence, the positions he takes up, off ball, and then his ball carrying ability as well. I I do think he could fit really well into the role. And you mentioned the other day, you think if we signed him, he'd have to play a six. I think he'd be wasted as a six in this shape. Really do. Because I think you take away what he's best at on the ball by playing him as a six. I think Manu in front of Trent, Alexis in front of Ugart as a box. I think that's that's going to give us more of more of what we need. And it's almost reshaping what the old midfield used to be. You've got Manu as the more defensive one a la Ginny. But on the right, Ugart as the Fabinho. And Alexis is that more attack-minded one, but playing on the left to keep keep balance so we don't have Trent and the one who doesn't do the defensive work on the same side. Yeah, that that is you know a key thing in the midfield here. That's what we have to turn around. Uh, the attacking-minded, more attack-minded one, more creative one, more movement-based one has to be the left one now rather than the right one. That's That's... That's kind of already there, in fairness. Like um, <clears throat> Jones is really good defensively, higher upfield and everything, and he's tracking back really well, but he has less positional, immediate responsibility to get all the way back than the right-sided one does now. Mm. And the right-sided one is not doing it all the time, regardless of who has been there, because it's been left, obviously, for Canate at times, or Fabinho's had to do it, or blah, blah, blah. Um, to be clear, the, the Kone as a six, I think that was that conversation was in relation to who we were saying was the other signing, um, rather than just Kone as a six by himself sort of thing. I think that was based on, you know, if the other signing we got was another attack-minded one rather than a, a Fabinho alternative. Oh, I get you, I get you, I get you. So you were saying yeah. if, if Fab is still the starter, then Kone is being misused. Then Kone actually has to be the six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's fair. I think that is fair. If there was another eight brought in, or, or you know, another the second midfielder was an attacking-minded one, um, Kone I think would be very, very good. And the two biggest best traits he has is his ball carrying and his ball winning. So, yes, in theory, whether I've seen enough of him doing that sort of channel work, can't really say off the top of my head. It's obviously not the setup that um, that Gladbach would normally rely no. on him doing. So, you know, it's a, a difficult thing to say. But, you know, he's diligent, he's, he's conscientious about his work, he's intelligent in terms of his positional play, and we are still going to be relying on the right-sided centre-back to go out there in that channel at times as well, so it's got to be someone who can comfortably drop in alongside Van Dijk or the other centre-back, basically, as well. Not just run to right-back, not just, you know, go centre-mid, centre 
centre attacking eight zone and then all the way back to right back. There is definite understanding of positional play which is required, and I think Kone has that. Um, so that's that's fine. I'm not sure how much I like the idea of him doing the overlap down the right-hand flank, I'll be honest, uh, that we've seen sometimes. But then if the, the priority is to be better set in attacking moments against possible transitions, then yeah, fine. The other name that came up is Yunus Musa. Now, physically, he could do the role. The only doubt on him is his passing isn't great. I mean, he's... He completes about 85% of his short and medium passes, but the volume is minuscule. He doesn't really touch the ball through games. Kind of like Ginny. He does all his best work off the ball. You wouldn't really get anything from him in terms of on-ball production. Um, So, you, you know, you would just kind of have to understand that with the ball, you're almost playing with a man less. Uh, but he does have the pace to do those overlapping runs. And for a time at Arsenal, he did play wide. So it's not completely foreign to him. Yeah. Kone just... Having that ability to play in a multitude of positions like he does, and having that ability to then change shape within games and know that you can drop him in next to Gart or whoever at a moment's notice and the two of them can just form a double pivot that that is appealing to me it really is appealing to me um i, I would i would much rather sign him than mount and I, and i think mason mount is really good like i don't understand liverpool fans who've turned their noses up at mason mount i really don't get why people think he's not good enough you look at the last two seasons and he was outstanding for Chelsea he was pretty good the season before that he was good on loan at Derby he was good on loan at Vietas Arnhem he was getting better year on year on year until this season but nobody at Chelsea has had a good season the whole thing has been an absolute disaster for them so I don't know that you can look at this season and judge anybody from Chelsea other than Todd Bowley and the the circus that he has created, I, I don't even think it's fair to judge Potter based on what's gone on there this year. So, look, if we sign Mount, he is a good player, and he is at least diligent when it comes to tracking back. He will do it. He will work very, very hard, and maybe you can develop the defensive side of his game. He's, what, 20, is he 23? I don't want a developing player for that role. It's too important. I think this is a player who's got to be a defensive player. Simple as that. If we if we carry on playing this way, that role becomes one of the most important in the team. Mm. I don't want someone who needs to be developed and encouraged and told how to defend. You've got to have someone who can do it. I, I agree. I do agree. And I think if you can get Kone for the, the rumoured asking price is about 50. Sorry, it's about 40. The rumoured asking price on Alexis is 60 and Ugart has a buyout that's around 50. You can get the three of them for 150 million. I really do think you've picked all the boxes. Um, the other name that's been doing the rounds is Kefren Turam. And I think a lot of people thought, well, would he play on the left in the Curtis role? But I think Kefren might be the one that would play on the right. 
if we signed him and Alexis. And Kefren yeah. has undoubtedly the capacity to do the defensive side of things. He offers more on the ball than Manu. He's not as good off the ball, not nearly as good off the ball. He doesn't have Manu's aggression. He doesn't have Manu's timing. He doesn't have his reading of transition. So, you know, there's work to do there. But there's, there's undoubtedly a huge ceiling on him. Like, he, he could be a sensational option in that position. And then the final name going around is Ryan Gravenberch. And for me, he just doesn't put in the effort off the ball. I I don't want Ryan Gravenberch. I, I understand he's super talented. And if we were signing four, like if Thiago were to say, look, I want to go back to Barcelona. This hasn't worked. Let me go to Barcelona, you know, and we were going to buy a cheap fourth option. I could see Gravenberch been in the conversation to be that player. Someone as a project that we could develop. If we've got Pony, you know you can plug and play. Ugart can plug and play, Alexis can plug and play, and Gravenberch can be developed, then I'd say, yeah, fair enough. But if, if Gravenberch has been brought in to start, we've taken a wrong turn somewhere. Yeah, I think Gravenberch, like Mount for me, would be the left-sided one anyway. They're too offensive-minded, so they shouldn't be coming in. Oh, Mount could come in as a starter on the left if, if that's what you really want, but Gravenberch isn't ready to be a starter at a Champions League top side. No, I agree. I agree. Um, right, let's move on then. Uh, this weekend, Liverpool face Brentford in the Premier League. The Reds come in having won five games in a row. Brentford have won back-to-back games after a bit of a drop-off for them prior to that. Brentford sit ninth. They will comfortably finish in the top half, which I think is a really impressive achievement for a team in their second season. In the Premier League, a lot of talented players at the club. They're obviously a club that runs a model quite similar to Brighton. And I think a lot of other clubs look at them quite admirably uh, in terms of you know how they handle themselves and how they go about their business. But, Carol, would it be fair to say that last summer's business hasn't worked for this season but potentially puts them in a really strong position for next season. So the players they bring in, Aaron Hickey, signed as a left-back, converted to a right-back, has had some injuries, has had some up-and-down form, but with a year under his belt, should be more comfortable there next year. Keen Lewis Potter, brought in from Hull, hasn't featured a whole bunch, has had some injuries, is now out for the rest of the season. But he's another one that I would expect more from next season. Mikel Damsgaard hasn't impressed all that often, but again, hasn't had a consistent run in the team and should be better next season. And then Kevin Shade, brought in in January, has had a run recently and has had some good performances. But again, probably one that pops off next season. So they've managed to finish in the top half and I think they've put themselves in a position where they're naturally, because of the development of those four players, going to improve next season. I would expect them to be better, yeah. Um, I mean, you can't obviously guarantee that all of them are going to improve. I think Damsgaard in particular has been quite a letdown this year, not just not impressed. I think he's actually been quite a significantly lower level when he has been in the team than they expected. Um, you know, you can, fine, you can't get every single transfer right, so maybe he does come better, maybe he doesn't. But 
I think that they have done enough over the last two years that you can see even if they went and bought two more this summer you could probably expect them to be good you'd probably expect one of them to be really good to be honest um i think hickey is probably the one who has been decent even though he's been in and out and as long as there's no let's say longer standing repercussions for even tony situation then I, i don't see them going backwards that's for sure they've got a couple of players in there who they will need to replace or upgrade or phase out or whatever it is just because of the age of them like Pontus Janssen doesn't play so much anymore but he's 32 he's, and he's, he's leaving like, yeah. he's away he's, to Sweden Zanka probably goes as well doesn't he yeah, Zanka's yeah just a backup he came in part way through anyway um, but even like uh, Ben Mee obviously has played a really important part for them I suspect next season he'll be fine but he'll also be 34 so yeah. there's, there's, there's a couple of things that they do need to make sure that they're in place for. And again, same as we spoke about around this time last season, probably the squad depth. If you can replace, let's say two of those fringe players who are probably still championship quality and buy either players for the future or players who are already fringe premier league players, you make that squad better automatically. Mm. Uh, people like uh, Shandon Baptiste, for example, is probably the, the, the good example there. Uh, he's, someone who does a job for them, you know, and he doesn't mind calling upon him for certain matches or situations in matches, but he's never going to be a player who earns himself 15 Premier League starts a season, let's say. He's just not quite of that level. So if you do at some point replace him with someone who is, you've made your squad better, and I don't think that that's a very, very difficult thing for Brentford to do. No, I don't either. And, like, uh, you look at their squad... If they keep David Rea, I mean, he's he's certainly a good keeper for their level. They might have to replace him because other clubs are sniffing around. They do have Thomas Strakosha there, so he might just be the one that plugs in. Uh, he's missed most of the season through injuries and and different things. But in midfield, like it is a pretty strong group. You've got Matthias Jensen, you've got Josh De Silva, who's been quite good this season, Frank Onyeka, Amsgard, I'd expect more from next season, Vitaly Janolt is, I think, a really good player, and a Christian Norgard. You might want to add one for depth, but other than that, I think you're good. In attack, I mean, Tony is is their whole attack. He's he's a one-man machine, but he's sensational. But like you said, there is the lingering question of whether he's going to be available next season or for a chunk of next season. So they probably do need to find a number nine who can fill in or potentially be the successor because it's also possible that Ivan Tony leaves this summer because he's clearly good enough to go and play for a bigger club with all respect to Brentford but in the wide areas they're set with Shade, Lewis Potter with Mbomo with Wissa and obviously we've seen this season De Silva and Damsgaard can both play those roles as well I would look at their defence as the biggest area to strengthen. You mentioned Ben Mee, he'll be 34 next season. Probably you get one more year out of him. Zanka's probably gone, Janssen's probably gone. I'd be looking to upgrade on Ethan Pinnock. And I really like Christopher Azure, but he just can't stay fit. He's played nine games in the league this season, so he's probably a squad player for you next season. So maybe you need to bring in Sort of a start, an immediate starting centre back, and then one that will start 
maybe in 12 months. I'd also look at bringing in a more natural right back if I was them. And I I think Kyle Walker-Peters would be perfect. You had Walker-Peters and Rico Henry and Aaron Hickey. With Hickey and Walker-Peters both able to play left back as well as right back. You could have a solid fullback rotation where, you know, say Walker-Peters and Henry are the starters. But Hickey can play an equal amount of games on either side and you could manage kind of all three of them and get kind of the best out of them across the course of the season. But like whatever they do, it'll be smart and they'll sign players that people haven't heard of before. And all of a sudden they'll look completely at home in the Premier League, maybe not straight away, but it could be six months. It could be 12 months. They're a really smart club with a really good squad. And I think much of it is credit to Thomas Frank, who, for me, is is someone that if I was if I was if I owned let's say I owned Aston Villa, and in twelve months Unai Emery turned around and said, "Look, I think it's time for me to move on. I want to go do something different or whatever." Like Thomas Frank is absolutely somebody that I'd be looking at. I I do think maybe not the elite level clubs, but certainly the group just behind them. I think he's someone that they should be looking at strongly. Whether you could tempt him out of Brentford, I don't know. He's been there since 2018 and he seems very happy. But I do think there will be... uh, I think he will get a chance at a big club. Would you this summer take him if you were Daniel Levy? I saw his name come up recently and be immediately dismissed by a couple of Spurs fans. And I thought the arrogance in that was quite shocking. Considering... We all still mourn the departure of Maurizio Pochettino, who had not really impressed at Espanyol, done a decent job, admittedly a decent job with Southampton, but certainly no better than what Thomas Frank has done with Brentford. Uh, I I would take him at Spurs. I, I, I wouldn't class them as one of the elite. I think the elite are Liverpool, City, Chelsea, Arsenal... United. I, I think Spurs in the big six. You know that that meme of the, the soldiers against the wall with the clown in the middle? Like Spurs are sort of the clown in the middle because when we say big six, what do we really measure that on? Because they've had minimal success over the history of the club. They've had minimal success over the Premier League era. And if we think back to the start of the Premier League era, they were not a bigger club than Everton at that point. They weren't a bigger club than Villa at that point. And since the start of the Premier League, their only success has been two League Cups. Is that enough to warrant moving them above Everton and Villa, who've had much more success throughout history? I don't know that they necessarily have a much bigger fan base than either club. They've certainly, you know, been in and around the top four and all of that, but are we are we upgrading teams based on that season we finished second or that season we finished third or that season we reached the Champions League final? Like Spurs I would I, I've always felt funny putting them in the big six. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> 
This is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, Mac boxes and games consoles. Visit LibertyShield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. I, I just don't see them as that that type of club. They've got the best stadium in Europe now and, and congrats to them for that. But you're looking at a club that has won two league titles ever and the last one was in 1961. They've won eight FA Cups. The last one was in 1991. They did win the Cup Winners' Cup. That was in 1963. They've won the UEFA Cup twice. But Aston Villa have won the European Cup. And that trumps all of that. And they've got seven league titles and seven FA Cups and a bunch of league cups. Like Aston Villa, for me, are a bigger club than Spurs. So I would say, yeah, if I'm Thomas, if I'm Spurs and I'm in the position that I'm in and I've had a fairly nightmarish couple of years, yeah, I probably do go for Thomas Frank. And I do that knowing Harry Kane will probably leave, but also knowing that I could probably go and get Ivan Tony, who can give me 80% of what Harry Kane does. In this season, he's got 20 goals in the league, which is a fairly special return for a player in only his second, second season in the league. He's also someone that offers not the cane level of creativity, but a good level of creativity. Ivan Tony has five assists, um, I believe, this year in all competitions, which is a fairly decent return for number nine. So I wouldn't be against, you know, bringing in Thomas Frank, bringing in Ivan Tony, who knows what Thomas Frank wants from his nine. Frank knows the player, and that's that would certainly be something I'd consider. And just to very quickly flip it, if you were offered that, would you take it if you were Thomas Frank? <sighs> no, I don't know. I, I do I wonder I if Spurs have done some real damage to the reputation in the last couple of years because they, they go and bring in Mourinho, who's... I mean, regardless of what you think of him, he's Jose Mourinho, and he's one of the greatest managers who's ever lived. And they bin him off when he's gotten them to a cup final. And then they, they mess around with their managerial search, and they jump about trying to find the right guy, and somehow end up with Nuno Espirito Santo, who, after the whole rigmarole with... Uh, with Reno Gattuso they somehow end up with Nuno who the other job he was applying for in the league was Crystal Palace which is you know a very different level 
he's a disaster. They bin him off quite quickly. They get Conte in. He finishes top four. He has them in the top four again. And they sack him. If I'm Thomas Frank, I'm, I'm looking at that and thinking, well, what the fuck are your expectations? Like, what do you expect a manager to go in there and do? I don't think that there's a... a well, there's not, there's not a structure in place at the minute. There's not a clear set of expectations. There's not a squad which is used to being directed well, to be perfectly honest. So I, I wouldn't be taking that of him. That's a lot of upheaval. I will say, I do think... The squad does lend itself to Thomas Frank's brand of football because he no, he does no, he does no. like a back three. Now, you, you, regardless of who comes in, that squad is set up for a back three. Like all of their wing backs are wing backs, other than Emerson Royale, who they probably should be trying to sell. But Poro and Spence are wing backs. Doji and Sessignon are wing backs. You've got to play a back three if you're taking over at Spurs this summer. He does like grafters in midfield. Like he doesn't look for anything spectacular from his midfielders. And the group of midfielders Spurs have with Benton and Basuma and Hoysberg and Skip and Papi Matarsar, they're all grafters. They're all workhorses. And he wants, you know, goals from wide and a ball carrier from wide and isn't Kulisevsky kind of Brian Mbomo on steroids? You know, so he kind of fits yeah. that role. Son as the Wissa, Tony as the Kane. It does It does kind of fit what he wants to do. Absolutely needs a new goalkeeper and two new starting centre-backs, but that's true of any manager that walks in there. And look, this guy has had respectable defensive units in the Premier League with Ethan Pinnock and Pontus Janssen and Ben Mee and Zanka. He hasn't been working with the best of the best, though he is capable of of putting in a good defensive structure. So I think if he, if he's given the money and, and he knows what the plan is in terms of director of football and all of that, then yeah, but but it's a lot of assurances to need, a lot of assurances to have to get before you take the job. I would also point out that plenty of people have had assurances on the playing and coaching staff alike at Tottenham, which have not been followed through. 100%. 100% that's the truth. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're probably the next next club to be sold um, of, the, of the bigger clubs in the league. Because I think, they, they, I think time is running out on Daniel Levy and, and Joe Lewis and, and, and that group. They just, they just have let the fans down too often. They've let their own players down too often. They've let managers down too often. I mean, look, the situation is when they got to a Champions League final, which was kind of the the biggest moment the club had achieved since, I don't know, winning the UEFA Cup in, in the 80s. Their manager was already looking for an out at that point because he felt he'd been let down too many times. So, you know, that kind of speaks to how they've how they've gone about this. Mourinho felt let down. Conte Conte basically publicly came out and said, Sack me. Because this is shit. <laughs> because you're all losers. Just sack me. Um Yeah, he would need to know that there was a real plan in place, would would Thomas Frank. It's 
It's probably not worth the risk. It's probably not worth the risk. But it will be tempting to him. Because those jobs are always going to be tempting. Every rational bone in Graham Potter's body had to scream, do not do this, when Chelsea came in for him. But he still did it. And I would say that was a far, that's a far more difficult job than the Spurs job. For the opposite reasons, there's too much expectation, there's too much spending, there's too much nonsense and noise. Spurs is just kind of meh. So we still have to worry about him this weekend, then. We do, um, we do. So going into this game, um, both teams have some injury issues, as we're aware. Liverpool will be without Thiago for the rest of the season, without Ramsey for the rest of the season, and without Besetic for the rest of the season. Naby Keita, according to Jurgen, was due to rejoin training on April 28th. So he must be getting closer to some level of, of fitness. Uh, remains to be seen what happens with Bobby. There doesn't seem to be any clear message on, on what the situation is with him. Uh, in terms of Brentford, no Janssen. They're hopeful he might make it back for the last game of the season. But it's very, very unlikely. Uh, Lewis Potter is done for the season. Strakosh is injured again. Ayers injured again. And Norgard probably done for the season. So Janssen and Nor Janssen, Ayer and Norgard are all in their strongest eleven. So those are losses for them. They have moved to a bit more of a back four recently. Uh, to make up for the fact that they just don't have three fit centre-backs that they can trust. So I'm guessing we're looking at David Rea, Aaron Hickey, Ethan Pinnock, Ben Mee, Rico Henry, Norgard, Jensen, maybe Damsgaard is the third midfielder. And then up front, I think it'll be Mbomo, Tony and, and Kevin Shade. Norgard's out, isn't he? I say Norgard. I bet say Janolt. Janolt, Damsgaard and Jensen. That's what I think the midfield will be. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, um, I mean, Da Silva, like you said, has had a pretty good oh, he has played second well. half. He'll be playing instead of, so... yeah, him instead of Damsgaard. Yeah, yeah, I think Jensen, Da Silva and then either Janolt or Onyeko. Janolt, probably. Um a few options there, but the, the the switch from the back three gives them an extra name up front, obviously, or from the flanks. So I think um, Jensen and Da Silva for sure, and then Onyeko or Janot, Yeah. So it is a strong team. It's a team that are <clears throat> very good on the counter attack. It's a team that have gone to some of the bigger clubs this season and caused them problems. Uh, we saw them go to Manchester City. And come away with an impressive win. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out the fact that they could come to Anfield and get something. They've also gone to Chelsea and won this season. They've won away to Southampton, away to West Ham. Um, they've gotten away draws at Leicester, at Bournemouth, at Nottingham Forest, at Leeds, at Arsenal, which was a, a really strong result for them, at Brighton. And they won't have any fear coming to Anfield. No, no, they absolutely won't, especially given the best methods that they have of 
counter-attacking down the channels is basically our Achilles heel at the minute. So they will get chances. There's no question about that. They've been in relatively good form again over the last couple of weeks after a few more poor results before that. So I think that they'll actually come to Anfield thinking they can win this game. Yeah. Yeah, and like you said, the way they counter-attack down the flanks with, with real pace and purpose... And Ivan Tony has caused us problems. I mean, he absolutely battered Joel Matip and Virgil um, at their stadium last season. Absolutely ate, for, uh, ate Joel Matip alive. It was it was actually staggering to see because I've never seen Matip dominated in that way where in every single phase Ivan Tony had the better of him. Whether it was the air, whether it was on the ground, whether it was his hold-up play and just backing into Matip and bullying him. I think Ivan Tony is is fantastic. And I said to you before the summer, I would have actually signed Ivan Tony for us. I do wonder what that would have looked like if he was the nine. Because he has bits of what Cody offers as a false nine and he has bits of what Darwin offers as a nine. Um, might not have the ceiling of either. But I think he's a better player than both right now. Yeah, I, I am concerned about this game, I have to say. I think I think this and the Villa game are, are our toughest games left. And I wouldn't be surprised if Brentford came and got something. What do you think we'll do then? Because uh, last night saw Jürgen make three changes. He brought in Costas at left-back. I assume that reverts back to Robbo for this game brought Henderson into midfield for Harvey Elliott and he brought Darwin in for Cody I assume Cody will start so that's Cody and Robbo back in the first 11 do you think he changes the right side at 8 roll because Henderson looked boost all of that aimless pressing of goalkeepers and right backs really seemed to take whatever energy he had out of him last night I think Henderson will start again I think obviously coming out for, for the one game Something we've seen several times, not just with him, but Andy Robbo as well, that kind of thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same team again, even if it's like an hour or so that he plans to use a couple of those players for, because then after that, it's a bigger break before the next game. So I, I think it'll be, we say, the, the, the strongest lineup that we have at the minute. Like you say, with Diaz staying in, Gakpo coming back, and then Robbo and Henderson both in as well the strongest lineup we have it can't be it just can't be strongest lineup Jurgen has been putting out Jurgen's preferred lineup is not the strongest lineup it never has been it never will be but that is yeah that is yeah he looked goosed last night he really did look goosed he couldn't move for the last five minutes he was standing watching it's a concern um but but the truth is the way they counter-attack you really can't afford Harvey can you just can't afford to have Harvey Elliott as that right-sided one because at least Henderson has a bit of physicality about him. Harvey just he so easily brushed off things. He just he and he and he doesn't have the foot speed. Like if he's left trying to chase Johan Wissa down the wing or Kevin Shadow down the wing, he's just going to get left in their dust. Um. Yeah, that, that is the biggest concern for me, is them running into that right-sided channel. I found it interesting last night that Jürgen seemed to place the blame for for the chances that Fulham had down that side on Ibu and not on the lack of cover or protection in front of him. 
I thought that was a unique approach to man management. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's still a lot to be sorted out in that role. There's, it, there doesn't appear to be a single person who has responsibility for it. It's you know a collective approach. That's fine, but all these people who have to be involved in that collective approach have to be, know exactly when it's their turn and when they have to go and who they're going with. So at the minute, we're quite a way off it, to be perfectly honest. We are. We're we're very much off the pace at the moment. Yeah, I, I think you're right about the team, and it doesn't fill me with, with joy, the idea of watching that performance again in the right side at eight. Uh, but when you look at the bench, there's just no one there. I mean, Milner doesn't have the legs to do it. Harvey can't do it. The, the only real option that we have at the moment is Cody, but again, he's he's much more attack-minded and defensive-focused. Um, it's just not ideal at all. I can't wait for the season to be over. Uh, give me a prediction and let's go home. I will stay optimistic because we're at home again, 3-2. I'll go 1-1. I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic. There was a lot of things last night that I didn't like the look of, and it very nearly ended up in a one-one when you know apparently Ibu made a mistake by not being able to deal with the ball carrier and the runner all by himself. Um, have you anything to plug before you head off to uh, before you head off to Monaco? Uh, pieces on Brighton, Messi, and Thibaut Courtois across and around the weekend if people wish to read them. I'm sure they will all be very, very good. Just actually, on Messi, before we go, on Messi, are PSG playing the role of the jilted lover by leaking out now that they have no intention of renewing his contract after I think he's made it quite clear that he wants to leave? Like, What, what do they think they're accomplishing here? Yeah. They're just making... Making themselves an even bigger laughing stock than they have been. I think this is just for the fans, to be honest, to make it like abundantly clear this is a, a turning point for what they are and what they want to be and all that kind of stuff. You know, the rumours that have been leaked, like Catherine Turan being on their list of targets, is a, a marked change, let's say. And, you know, there's been fans outside Neymar's house, I believe, this week, so. Uh, I think that this is all part of that larger approach. Yeah, I think so. And and I said this the other day, if if the Qataris get their hands on United, I would not be at all surprised if Neymar is a Man United player within the first two windows of that happening. Purely to get him out of Paris. Because there's no, they've no other way of getting rid of him. No one else is going to pay any kind of fee for him when the wage bill is you know, the better part of a million quid a week. So... I wouldn't be surprised if Neymar ends up at United, which could be great fun to watch him play 11 Premier League games a season. Um, Right, we will talk to you next week. You'll note that we've gone long, unlike the very succinct and structured and strict hours myself and Carl were sticking to in the absence of Guy with the return of Guy Drinkle. We have once again leaked over to about an hour 15. But we'll do better. See you next time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. 
Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.